0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 29th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about the microbial footprints we leave in our homes, and David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org. Housemates and families share more than a home. They also share its microbial inhabitants. In a study this week... Jack Gilbert and colleagues report that different houses have different microbiota, and that when we move, our microbial friends come along with us. I spoke with Jack about these results.
1: The Home Microbiome Project is an effort to try and understand the modes and routes of transmission, almost like a roadmap of bacterial transmission between people and surfaces in a home. This is a place where we spend 99% of our time, or 90% of our time at least, and that the time that we spend actually inside shapes our microbiome and, and hence our health.
0: In this study, you looked at a subset of families involved in the microbiome project. How did you pick those families and how often were they sampled?
1: We went across a broad socioeconomic and geographic group for families. We reached out into the community via real estate agents and various other people. We said, look, you know, we have an exciting science project to do. We want to understand your microbiome, the microbiome of your home. And we want to try and track how the bacteria on you and in your home move between you and your home surfaces. And we got a remarkable number of people that signed up. (laughs) There are budding scientists out there in the public who are excited to do this kind of research.
0: Great. And how often were they sampled, the people in the study?
1: We sampled them daily and every other day, depending upon their uh, desire to be sampled. And we sent them little kits in a freezer, which was stamped with a cool logo, make sure they were excited about it and they got to keep the freezer. They had these kits and they sampled their hands and their noses and the soles of their feet and then various surfaces around their home daily. We gave them some proper training and also checked up with them on their training and how they were, how they were doing throughout the design of the study.
0: And this looks at how comparing the skin microbiome that's on you and stuff that's on the surface in your house. How do microbes move between those two places?
1: If you think about it, um, especially from your hands and your feet, we also did the nasal passage, but on your hands and your feet, every time you touch something, you touch the wall or a light switch or a doorknob or even the floor with your feet, you leave a little bit of subcutaneous oil. We all carry this oil across our skin. You leave a lot of that oil behind. And also you shed skin cells in that oil and on those skin cells are bacteria. So you're depositing large quantities of your own bacteria from your body into the surfaces of the home on a regular basis. But it goes the other way. You know, when you're breathing in at night, you're consuming quite a large quantity of bacteria in the air. So all the dust, um, mostly from your own skin, is now being recirculated back into your body. But also, if you have a dog, a cat, or pets, you also consume the bacteria that they shed into the environment and you take that back into your body. Also, every time you touch a surface, if there are bacteria on that surface, there will be exchange. So it goes both ways.
0: Right. And when you looked at the microbes carried on family members or members of a household, how do they compare you know, within the family, within the home, and then to other families and other homes?
1: We found some very exciting evidence about the similarity between a family and the difference between families, and even the difference between people in a home. Families, people living inside a property, become more microbiologically similar. So they share more of their own microbes, especially if they're physically interacting. We had a, a unique instance when we had a lodger living with a young couple. The young couple were obviously physically interacting based on their microbiological profile, but the lodger looked very different. So you could identify a physical relationship in those three. But if you look at a young family with two young children who are constantly physically interacting, you just don't see that variance. They all look quite microbiologically similar. And yet still, you can identify there are four individual people there remarkably, your home and your family have a unique fingerprint. So the home looks like the microbiological fingerprint of your family. And so every family we went to had their own unique fingerprint in the home.
0: Hmm. And so there was a lot more similarity inside the house than say between houses. So it's not, oh, this is the kind of bacteria that grow on walls, or this is the kind of bacteria that you find on kitchen counters. It's much more about who lives there and what their contributions are.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's different levels of similarity. So you and your family will leave the strongest imprint. You are the primary driver of the bacteria living in your home. But still, there are different bacteria which will survive on different surfaces. So it's like the bacteria have been subselected from your family's microbiome, and the ones that can survive on the floor will survive there. The ones that can survive on a doorknob will survive there. And so, you know, the floor is often made of different material to a doorknob. So it, it, it makes sense. It's like if you shed your bacteria into a rainforest versus a desert, you're going to see differences in what can survive.
0: You also were able to follow people from one house to another when they moved. What did their microbes do in that scenario?
1: We looked at three families that were living in one property and then they moved from that property into another property. We studied them for two weeks in the old property and then four weeks in the new property, and their microbiome in the old property looked indistinguishable from the microbiome in the new property. So, you know, essentially what we were looking at was a transfer of the microbiome from their old old property to their new property, but we thought, well, maybe that's just too simplistic. Everybody had a unique microbiome in their property, as I said, but these people seemed to be transferring their microbiome from an old property to a new place. And we were like, well, you know, uh, that, that seems to be too rapid. But then we had a, one couple that moved from a hotel into a near new home. And the hotel microbiome was nearly identical to their microbiome and to the microbiome of their new home. So they had transferred that microbiome from the old property, the hotel, to the new property in under 24 hours.
0: You know, the humans colonize and their bacteria colonize.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The microbiome transferred from the humans is like their fingerprint that they leave behind. It's their calling card for any property they live in.
0: And what happens when an individual moves out of a home? Is their imprint left behind for very long?
1: So we see that on different surfaces and for potentially different individuals that they have a different exchange system. So if somebody leaves the home, goes on a business trip or or goes away for a couple of days, different surfaces will show a decay in their microbial profile compared to all the other people in the house Mm -hmm. over different time frames. So we actually did this in, in three different instances, an adult child living with his parents, one father living with a young family, and a man living by himself. And in all three of those instances, the signature of that person decayed in 24 to 48 hours after they left. But it was different for those different people.
0: So what's the forensic potential of this kind of research? We were talking about being able to distinguish whether or not a person, you know, has been in a house very long or has left recently. Is that something that this research could be used for?
1: The great thing about this data is, like J. Edgar Hoover, who went around trying to organize the fingerprint database across the United States to create the FBI's fingerprint database, we have the potential to understand the microbial fingerprints of people and how they relate to their environment now. So we know that people leave a unique microbial fingerprint behind in the places that they frequent. We are following this up with other studies soon, but essentially what we're looking at is the potential to identify the microbial signatures of individuals wherever they go. So yeah, you could tell if somebody had been in the property within the last few hours or the last few days. You could identify when they were last there. You could identify who they were if you had their microbial fingerprint in a database. Remember, we all have a unique and reasonably stable microbial profile. It fluctuates a little bit throughout our lives, but from the age of two onwards, it's remarkably identifiable. So
0: the family or members of the household, they share certain ones, but they're still relatively unique within the household.
1: It's quite remarkable. You can tell there are four people or two people or three people living within a home. Or, you know, you can tell there are three separate dogs living in one of these homes. Um, it's obvious from the profiles that there are individuals there. But they share so many microbes sometimes, you can also tell they're physically interacting. So you don't just have a fingerprint that says, this person was here. You have a fingerprint that says this person was here and they most of the time spent physical interaction with this person um, and they last left this property in the last uh, 72 hours. So you can, you can tell a lot more than you can from a standard fingerprint.
0: And this is part of the much larger Home Microbiome Project. What are some of the larger goals and uh, the future of this kind of research?
1: The Home Microbiome Project is the latest initiative in a long running investigation based on the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Microbiology of the Built Environment, but we are continuing to investigate the microbiome of different environments in which people reside, work or have to go when they're sick. So we've just finished a three hundred and sixty five consecutive day analysis of a hospital, a brand new hospital that we got to look at for two months before it was open, and then 10 months following the moving in of all the doctors and sick people. And we're using that kind of information to track how we microbiologically influence that kind of space, and consequently, how that space microbiologically influences us. So for example, we're very interested in disease transmission, but also the development of the microbiome when we move into a new space. In a hospital, for example, as well as a home, if you're taking antibiotics, it looks like you're more likely to acquire microbes from that space. If you have a stable microflora, you give microbes to that space. So we are starting to understand that microbial directionality in a property, and depending upon the state of the host, their influence or their ability to be influenced by the microbiome of an environment.
0: Jack, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: Jack Gilbert and colleagues write about the latest results from the HOME Microbiome Project in this week's science. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on what makes humans so nice to each other. Humans are much quicker than other primates to help out others in need, be it a person or a puppy. How did we get to be so, so altruistic? One theory is that we rely on each other for raising our children, and this trait underpins cooperation in general. So, Dave, what other animals raise their young cooperatively?
2: Well, actually, the animals that do that tend to be animals that are not closely related to us, which is kind of surprising. Animals like about 10% of birds are cooperative breeders, and when we say cooperative breeding, we mean that the mothers are getting help from relatives, and sometimes even non-relatives, raising their offspring. Meerkats and uh, New World monkeys like tamarins and marmosets. What's really interesting is that much more closely related species to us, like chimpanzees, are not cooperative breeders. So somehow, in our evolutionary history, our deep Deep, deep ancestors didn't have this cooperative breeding. And then somehow just the human line, at least among the great apes, regained this ability. And also humans tend to be a lot more altruistic. So there's been this idea that perhaps the two are linked.
0: To look into this, the researchers came up with a way to get primates to share, like sharing machinery. Even human children were able to use this. And how did
2: it work? Well, there's actually a video of it on the site that you can check out. But basically, they had a couple of animals side by side, and one could pull basically a board that would bring a treat. And for some primates, it was insects. For the human children, it was Smarties candy, something that they really wanted. What was key to the experiment is that one individual could pull the board so that the treat would get closer and closer, but that individual could never get the treat. It was only the other individual that could get the treat. So it was sort of a test of pure altruism. Are you going to help somebody next to you who you might not even know help get a treat, even if you can't get it yourself?
0: Right. And so after looking at trends and sharing among these various primates, who came out as the most generous?
2: Well, it turns out, as the researchers sort of suspected, that the species that were the cooperative breeders tended to be much more altruistic in this test.
0: Cooperative breeding is closely linked with altruism in this study. But now I have to ask, where did cooperative breeding come from?
2: Well, one idea is that as our species first moved from life in the trees to this much more precarious existence in the savanna and woodland environments, it became very, very difficult for women to raise children on their own. They really needed a lot of help. So we had to evolve this ability to help each other out. Otherwise, our species wouldn't have survived. And the legacy of that carries over to today, where we're still much more likely to help each other out than a lot of other animal species are.
0: Next up, we have a story on extraterrestrial clouds. The headline of the story is, Water Clouds Detected Seven Light Years Away from Earth. But that actually leaves me with a lot of questions. Let's start with, how far away is seven light years?
2: Seven light years is a long way away, but not as long as it could be. For comparison, that's less than twice the distance to Alpha Centauri, which is the nearest solar system to us.
0: And you say the nearest solar system, does that mean that this place or this object where these clouds were identified was not part of a solar system? It doesn't really
2: qualify. This is a uh, brown dwarf that these clouds were tentatively spotted on, and brown dwarfs are failed stars. They have so little mass that they can't sustain the nuclear reaction needed to power the suns that we think about. So after its birth, it fades and it cools. This is a very cold place. Its temperature is slightly below the freezing point of water. So it's a lot colder than Earth, although warmer than some places like Jupiter.
0: So it's a middling object hanging out all by itself. Why did anyone notice it, and what were they looking for?
2: Well, it's sort of an interesting object just because it's out there by itself, and uh, some astronomers have been taking a close look at it, and what they discovered in this new study was when they took a bunch of infrared images of the object, which is known as WISE (laughs) J0855-0714. I'm sure you will all remember that at home. They observed that the colors that they were getting back matched models of a brown dwarf, With clouds of water ice. Now clouds have been observed before outside of our solar system, but this is the first time that these have been water clouds. So that's really fascinating.
0: And the other part that the researchers point out is that it's partly cloudy, which I thought was a funny (laughs) observation. (laughs) That's, That's
2: right. They say about half of this object is obscured by clouds. Now this is a very cold very dark and lonely place so even if there are water clouds there it's not the kind of place you'd want to vacation at anytime soon but it is really interesting for astronomers to spot these sorts of things because if we can spot water clouds on other planets that might be much more habitable to life then there is a possibility that there may actually be life there
0: oh cloudy with a chance of aliens that's right (laughs) lastly we have a story on the transition from sea to land At some point in the distant past, animals left the ocean and started cavorting on the land. A recent study suggests that this big transition may have started with a change in development rather than in genes. To look at this question, the researchers raised fish on land. Let's start with that, Dave. What kind of fish are we talking about here?
2: Well, Sarah, this is a type of fish called a bitcher. And this is a really interesting fish. This is a fish that's very long. actually a picture of it on the site it has lungs and big bony scales and it uses its large pectoral fins that are behind its head to haul itself around land so this is actually a fish that spends some time on land usually when it's going to new watering holes what's also really interesting about this fish is it's a very ancient fish this is a lineage that sits at the base of an evolutionary tree where you had a split between rayfish, which are most kinds of fish, and a group that includes lobe fin fish, such as lungfish and coelacanths, and even the land animals. So this is a very ancient fish, and that's actually one of the reasons the researchers chose to study it.
0: The study design is kind of deceptively simple here. Go to the pet store, buy 150 bitchers, raise some on land and some in the water. After they did this, what kind of differences were observed between land-raised and sea-raised fish?
2: What was really fascinating is even though the sea-raised fish can walk on land, those that were raised on land were much better at it. Not only were they better, but actually their skeletons reshaped to help them walk on land a lot better. For example, the bones that support their fins and attached on the back of the head took on new shapes. The equivalent of their collarbone uh, grew longer so it could better support their body. They got much better range of head motion when they were raised on land, which you don't really need in the sea because you can just sort of swim to what you're looking at, but in, on land, you really need to be able to swim to your head. So the, the researchers saw all these really fascinating skeletal changes that allowed these guys to not only live on land, but really take very well to this terrestrial environment.
0: These physical changes in the animals were due to influences on their development. We're not talking about changes to the genetic code or anything like that. How does this model of adaptation work in the long run if these changes are not something they can pass down?
2: One possibility is that, or one theory is that, these animals that are much more plastic, as the researchers say, this are much more uh, malleable, at least in terms of their skeletons, are the ones that get selected for. And then over time, it's these animals, these changes these animals experience actually become translated to the genes. They become much more hardwired changes. And then you see this evolution over time where these animals don't just have to adapt to land every generation. They're actually born with a much better ability to survive on land than their ancestors were.
0: It seems like this would be difficult to prove one way or the other. In the fossil record, these changes to their physical structure would appear just like any other changes that we had attributed to genetic and evolutionary change over time. Can we tell anything about that at this point?
2: And that's a great question. And the answer is we don't really know. We know, according to the fossil record, that these types of changes took place. What we don't know is how.
0: Okay, so what else is on the site
2: this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new way to... Wipe away bad memories. Also, a story about whether one of the world's leading independent ways to accredit animal research labs is really as effective as people think. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the latest development in the stem cell controversy that's rocking Japanese science. And we're also keeping track of the Iceland volcano when it's going to blow, if it's going to blow, and why. And how to say
0: its name. And
2: why it's going to blow and how to say its name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so maybe not so much on that last part, but uh, be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crosby, And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.